Well, welcome back to Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast. Abram here. I am really excited because we have a guest on today that's absolutely brilliant. Someone that I uh, have been familiar with and have met a few times over the years. Um, who is also a Nashvilleian and a brilliant licensed therapist, uh, an Enneagram professional who specializes in uh, the intersection of trauma and the Enneagram. Our guest today is Sharon Ball. So Sharon, we're really grateful to have you. Thanks so much for being with us today. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me. And I've been looking forward to this. We have Absolutely. too. In in all of in all of our episodes, we have like this sheet of questions and stuff. And at the top of our 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 guiding energy for this interview is just remember this is a big topic. And so <laughs> we did, we were just talking offline how how this is not going to cover all the bases, but we're so excited to jump into this. Exactly. Yeah. So we we thought just to bring uh, a little levity to this big topic, uh, could you could you tell us uh, your top strength? In your Myers Briggs Finder, <laughs> my top strength in my Myers. <laughs> that literally just got my heart racing. <laughs> my brain went into flight mode. <laughs> that's amazing. My palms are sweating, so that's actually like a good intro to what is trauma traumatize me you stressed me out there (laughs) hey that's a that's some helpful things that we're wanting to get we want to talk about that yeah yeah um i love it (laughs) (laughs) well yeah so i mean you just answered i think clearly there but you know you just put out a a new book called uh, reclaiming you using the enneagram to move from trauma to resilience so first off congrats on the book that's amazing uh, i really enjoyed the book but to start our convo um we thought we'd begin with having you help us clarify a, a few terms uh cuz you know the modern world things there's just so much access immediately to things and people tend to grab a hold of something like read one book and become an immediate authority on something so intense or um, massive and complex as trauma. Uh, plus, it just seems like on social media, almost any behavior can be a trauma response. Like if I check my mailbox twice a day or I don't like cats, that must mean my mom didn't love me growing up. I, I don't know. Um, so... I, I would just love to start off with, could you give us your kind of best description of trauma and even maybe resilience as well? What is trauma? First of all, trauma is what happens in your body. It's your neurological, physiological, biological response to something that is threatening, typically life-threatening. Now, that can also be perceived or an overwhelming event that occurs and your body cannot process it. So you might not, you know, be in danger, physical danger, but you're it's the inability for the body to process so it just starts to shut down or it goes into, you know, one of those modes, fight, flight, freeze or fawn mode. Um, and I often say that your physiology and your neurobiology impact your psychology, which is what creates this trauma loop, right? Mm. You cannot address your psychology without your biology being addressed. Mm. So that that's so important for us as Enneagram teachers, trainers, practitioners, coaches to understand that in order for us to get to the psychology of someone, we have to address 
their physiology and their neurobiology first because the nervous system is overwhelmed with this event uh, or chronic events. Yeah. So in line with that, uh, Sharon, could you tell us the four types of trauma um, that you outline in your book as well as um, like what, what those actually mean and why they're important? So when I was explaining trauma, I mentioned the word chronic you know, so let's say so we have chronic trauma, which could be an event like hmm, a military family moving from place to place. Um, their their son or daughter is in a school environment maybe for a year, and then they pack up and they move again. And they're moving within the time span of that child growing up from the ages of five to eighteen, maybe. 10 to 15 times, right? So that kid is is got this chronic having to start over, do over, meet new friends and and let's say that their psychology is hardwired to be more um, a seeker of stability and needing that, then that chronic event over and over and over can create a trauma, a traumatic uh, experience for them. Whereas maybe the parents it's fine. They've they they're more agile um, and they can move, whatnot. So that's an, exa- an example, all the way to, you know, a divorce situation where someone is in the court system for a long period of time. You know, the event doesn't end. Then we have insidious trauma. You named specifically um, that the sense there's maybe in their psychology a sensitivity to needing something specific, right? Yeah. Because yeah. um, that might mean because I'm a twin. And, uh, you know, place my, myself and my twin in the same environment, one of us might be traumatized and one of us might not be, right? Mm-hmm. So it's specific to uh, the sensitivity of our psychology, right? Yes. Yeah. And to your physiology. Mm. So you're, you're, we're always, this is why I lead with trauma first and then psychology, trauma information first, which is understanding how that person has... Uh, physically responded to the event. Now, this speaks to some of the resilience, right, of each type. And and we can get into that later, that the exact same event, another type might not respond that way. But we're we're always leaning into the what's going on with the body first, because regardless of type, they everyone's going to respond physiologically. Mm-hmm. to an event, but in a different, uh, it might come out in a different way. So then moving to insidious trauma is more of our discrimination. You know, the, the trauma that happens when hate is thrown at someone for their personhood, um, their, their color, race, ethnicity, religion, uh, gender, and their personhood is attacked in such a way that, yeah, I think the word speaks for itself. It's insidious. Mm-hmm. It, it, it strips them of the who of who they are mm-hmm. um, because you're picking at or you're, you're attacking at something of their being, their, the who, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I find, to go on a little rabbit <laughs> trail, I find that that's one of the hardest to recover from. And, you know, is more covert in nature, you know, uh, where it could be even an emotionally abusive environment, verbally abusive, but it's on the down low. And yet it's still just so cutting that that person has to, has to take time to heal. And then we've got acute trauma, which would be your single episodes. So 
had like the the freeze here in Nashville, the fires out in California, uh, the tornado, um, our shooting up at Covenant. You know, it's a it's a single episode. And from that, then we have to look at how that person responded and the length of time. And again, in that, there's probably for each survivor confounding variables, other things that impact it, their their past. But that would be a single episode that's not ongoing. Hmm. We'll have ongoing trauma responses, but uh, the trauma itself is not ongoing. So complex trauma is more around like uh, a primary caregiver or someone who has close connection in the upbringing or is in in that space. And you can only imagine why that would be traumatic Mm -hmm. is if you have some form of abuse by someone you trust, Mm -hmm. it rips out the security, the safety of that, that child or that adolescent, or even if we look at the elder population, if someone is caregiving for them and they're being abusive, their sense of security and safety. So if we go back to what is trauma, it's that threat, the feeling of threat to the body, whether perceived or actually a physical threat, it disrupts the whole sense of security, safety. And, and that could good example would be the elder population, somebody caregiving all the way as young as our little bitties. Am I hearing you correctly in that it seems as though um, like the more acute trauma is the more like specific one-time event versus the other ones sound more socialized in nature? Like they're slow, slowly infusing, being infused into you over time kind of experience? Yeah. Yeah. Like the drip, like a slow drip. Yeah. Uh, And, And is that the difference between big T and little t? So I would say not necessarily, but it might, you know, something that we talked about early on when you set the stage for this conversation is if this trauma is so complex in nature and understanding it, each individual is so unique. And so, for example, I've, I've had a client who was in type self-typed as an Enneagram eight, uh, and, Definitely, I think he is, but going back into his childhood, the amount of rage and anger that he grew up with definitely influenced how he coped with his trauma. You know, he turned into a little fighter himself um, and eventually ended up being an MMA fire fighter. So, you know, I think some of that, he, he sustained it over a, a long period of time figured out how to use his resilience in that. And yet you put another kid in that environment, it might not have turned out that way. So little T trauma to me might be more like a a divorce that happens that's amicable. It disrupts the family system. The kids are feeling wonky for the first two years, you know, because that's how long it takes for, you know, typically... Uh, a divorce situation to recover. It's traumatic mm, on a little scale because it's disrupted. They have two homes, you know, parents are rattled and eventually they get on their way versus, you know, uh, a divorce situation where it's ongoing. There's fighting over the children. They go to court. They're in the court system for a long period of time. That can create a big T trauma. So to use kind of those two examples, might help distinguish the little T from the big T. Our theme this season 
is the dynamics of personhood. And so trying to drill down into not only the labels and identities that we carry and honor those and, and complexify them in a good way, but then also realize how labeling things can become inherently limiting. So how important mm-hmm. how important would it be for someone to be able to label their quote-unquote type of trauma? Or is that just a helpful box to put things in? Yeah, I like that. I think words matter. Uh, I think they're important and they give us, they kind of point us in the direction needed to go. So when I think of, when I sit in my chair and I, why do we diagnose people, right? Well, for me, it's a diagnosis to give me direction. It's not to label that person. Oh, they have, you know, this is my client who has depression. No, it just gives me a starting point. So I do think it's important that we help people identify what they've been through. And and I say, hold it loosely because the healing process, it's to each his own. It's like art. You know, what, what I think is beautiful, you might not. So the healing process, it's going to be like their own way. And so the words, being careful you give them the correct words is important because you don't want them to self-identify with something that could hold them back. Um, yeah, you want it to be empowering. Yeah. Um, and and we share that value too with words mattering a lot. And so we've been noticing how a lot of these words like trauma, I mean, my kids mm-hmm. are in elementary school and they walk around the house saying things like emotional damage and triggered, you know? So it's... <laughs> Have you noticed it's kind of part of our like pop culture vernacular right now? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what do you feel like is really exciting about that? And also maybe Mm -hmm. some nervousness you have around that or some frustration possibly. Even within the Enneagram community. I love that. Um, So there's two sides to every coin. Mm -hmm. And the, the one side is I think the pandemic put the word trauma into every house as a household name. I think mm-hmm. it really like it really helped us begin to see the struggle of people and their mental well-being where we've kept it hidden under under a rock and people feel shame. They don't want to seek help. Now we've come a long way. Yes, definitely since I started sitting in the chair, but we're not there yet. <laughs> And so I think that's the positive side is it put it out there. I think within a lot of different communities that were struggling to embrace it, like our faith communities, you know, people really struggle and we have got to be there to understand it in our school systems. We're not understanding how much our kids are struggling, you know, so in a lot of different systems, it really helped us say, wow. Because now it affected everyone globally. That's a collective trauma. You know, now it's on everybody's front door. We're all in this together and people are experiencing the same stuff. To flip the coin over, I think it then has almost watered down what maybe someone might be going through because we use it so quickly and Mm -hmm. we don't have direction for it because we've done a great job at getting the language out there. And now we still have to come back and, you know, make sure the caboose is on the train and give education around it. And so it's like, but that's the tension that I've lived in for many years with therapy and understanding mental wellness. 
it, it's just like something lags behind and we have to give space for it to catch up. Yeah, that that um, recalls for me and what you initially were saying when I asked that first silly question. How then is someone supposed to uh, delineate between a stress-inducing experience versus a traumatic one? Because I feel like people are overusing that word. And I don't want to say that when it maybe potentially is, you know. Sure, sure. Right? I don't, yeah. Yeah, you want there, and you you always even, you know, I help people discern if they're experiencing uh, effects of trauma, you know. But sometimes you have to guide. And just like, I mean, great example, when you said my Myers-Briggs, you know, <laughs> you know, I just, I felt it all in me. I was like, okay, well. <laughs> I'm on overload. That is a stressor. Mm. We all experience stressors. Someone going through trauma will experience stress responses. However, someone going through stress will not experience trauma responses. Those are different. Mm. So mm. my amygdala went into alert, my nervous system's charged. However, within what, 35 seconds after we laughed, I'm fine. Good mm. to go. Here we go. It's not going to be embedded in my body. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it, my, it's, it's gone. Someone experiencing trauma, uh, it's embedded in the body. It's not gone like that. So I would just caution people to, as you, you're, you're, reflecting on new information around trauma, you know, pay attention to your body because it's your, your body's going to speak about what it's holding. And that might actually give you some connection to whether or not that's a stress response or a trauma response. Th- I think that's very helpful. I wanted to ask you to expound on that a little. And if you feel mm. like it's, it's going to take us in a total direction, that's going to be forever long. You can, we can just <laughs> skip it. But I'm wondering for the listener going, Oh, I, I'm not quite sure how to tell if something is, like you said, embedded in my body. Are there just a couple of things, a couple of handles you can give us? So one thing I, I try to help people reflect on is what does their decision make making look like right now? So if, if it feels like, hey, I'm not making some good decisions, I feel you know out of sorts, uh, mm. then I look at some, okay, let's back it up even more. Okay, what's impacting those decision making? or that decision-making. Do you feel confused? Are you irritable? Do you sleep well? Do you have Mm. lack of interest in, you know, things that you enjoy doing? Is there part of you that feels numb or checked out? Do you have a startle reflex? Do you have images from the event? So going back to, you know, the whole Myers-Briggs situation, I'm not going to go to sleep tonight and have anything happen. I mean, I, I might chuck it up a little bit in my, you know, REM sleep or something like that, but I'm not, but had I, I'm trying to think of an event, you know, had, had I been closer, let's say up to up near covenant driving by and I'm seeing everybody fly in and, you know, um, you're seeing people come out and it doesn't look good. That's going to be a level up from stress. You know, that's, so I might go to sleep and I might have a little bit of a difficult time going to sleep because it's going to be racing. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm on campus and I'm experiencing more, then you're going to have more symptoms come out. How that influences your decision making, whether you're a little bitty or a big person, is you're going to see it. 
you're going to be forgetful. You're going to not be able to respond quickly. Something's going to be amiss in how you go about your day to day and you're making de- your decisions. So if you've got this list of things that impact your decision making, then you've almost got a symptom list, right? And mm-hmm. then you can back it up and say, hey, what's gone on in my life in the last six months, in the last couple years? And maybe take it even a little bit farther. What if I missed in seeing me, maybe from childhood that's coming back up that I've not fully integrated, you know, something that's happened that I haven't really processed and and had a place to put it. Um, When we go through trauma, the brain has an amazing way of almost, it has its own filing cabinet called the hippocampus. And if we're not processing and integrating our trauma in a helpful way, it gets filed in the wrong spot Mm. only to be saved for a later date. And those are the triggers, Mm. right? It could be something in the present triggering something from the past that's unresolved. And then you respond in the present as if it's in the now. Mm -hmm. That's a good indicator. Hey, I've something's left undone. There's residue from an experience I had. It could be a traumatic experience. It could be something like chronic trauma. I was on a call the other day and I had an executive say, wow. Um, And it was interesting because this gets into more Enneagram uh, type, but he's a type three. We're talking about fawning. Fawning is one of the trauma responses. You have fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And most people would say, oh, Enneagram threes, they fawn all the time because, you know, they're chameleons. They're trying to do what everybody wants them to do. They can put on the mask, but it went deeper for him. And the more he spoke out loud and understood it, he connected it to uh, a father figure who was consistently criticizing him over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't come out and say, I feel like this is a big T trauma, but it was big enough for him to pause and say, that's something undone. I need to go back and look at it. So depending upon how many of those responses you have, symptoms you have, it could designate, you know, big T trauma or not. Sharon, you mentioned when we were communicating about doing this interview that you always lead with your trauma expertise first and then apply the Enneagram. Can you speak to yeah. why you think that is important for other therapists or or even even just Enneagram coaches who, who may be more trauma informed? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that we don't reduce someone to a type and we make sure we're, we're dealing with the person in front of us? Ooh. Ooh, I like that. Make sure we don't reduce someone to their type and we're working with the person in front of us. Okay. A lot of got got a lot going on in my head with that one. Wow, that's good. Well, first of all, let's delineate some roles here. Um, coaches work from a support model and counselors and therapists work from a, a clinical medical model. So you can be an informed trauma coach and an informed trauma therapist, and and your direction is going to look different. However, we all start at the the same spot, which is making sure we're identifying and helping that person identify if it is a trauma that they're recovering from. I like to say, stay in my lane. So if I take on a coaching client, I'm going to stay in my lane and I'm going to coach that way. I take on a therapeutic client, I'm going to stay in my lane, stay in that direction. So that helps you right off the bat around ethics and um, making sure that you give them good care. Because if I'm 
coaching a client and I recognize, wow, we keep coming back to this. This might feel like a trauma loop to me and coaching cannot break through that. They're going to have to go to a therapist. I, I encourage them and I've got a, a, a list of therapists that I'll, I'll send to them. I'll continue my coaching mm. because oftentimes that extra support, they need that for whatever business they're working in, for whatever environment they're working. They have to do both. People still have to get on with life when they're healing from trauma. And as a coach, I might be that respite from all the trauma work <laughs> they're doing. They can actually work on something that's more resilient in life, you know, something that's going on. So does that delineation help between the coaching and the, and the therapist? That's, I need you to say all of that again so people drill this into their head. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> I, I'm a stickler on this, guys, no, this because really good. it's so important. Yeah. It is so important. You can you can jack someone up mm -hmm. if you're trying to go in and you're let's so let's say surgery. I would see a coach like uh, a nurse or aftercare or you know, they're there, they serve a purpose, but they're not the doctor. They're not gonna go mm. in and do the surgery. And so when we're talking about what trauma does to the body, that's why counselors and therapists work out of a medical model because it is jacking that it's messing up their physical well-being. If you're not properly trained, you actually can do more harm. Mm -hmm. So yet hear me say, when I do my coaching, I find it one of the, the most favorite places to be because I'm not having to do that work. I get to have the person in my chair looking at what else is going on in their life. Let's work through your business yeah. plan. Let's look, work through strategy. You know, um, how much more money do you want to make this year? You know, how, how are things going on with your relationships separate from the trauma? Now the trauma is going to impact that, but it's not my job to figure that out. I do think coaches are on the front lines of recognizing trauma. So this is why they have to be skilled at being mm -hmm. trauma informed because mm -hmm. most people feel comfortable to go to a coach first before they go to a therapist. Mm -hmm. So the role of a coach is important to get them the help that they need and their body can relax. Because when you have a coaching client that's getting good therapeutic intervention, they soar in coaching. Mm. So the both are so important and staying in your lane is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's really wise too, because I haven't had an Enneagram client yet that I've worked with where trauma hasn't come up in the conversation yeah. at some point. Yeah. It's really unavoidable. Yeah. And so knowing yep. um, knowing where those lines are is really, really important to caring for people, caring for the person in front of you really well. Yes. And letting our egos as Enneagram coaches mm. find their way out the door very quickly because- yeah. Especially as a two, you know, I may want to be the one to help that person. Um, and so I have to go, this is not my deal. I cannot help in this way. And knowing those boundaries are just, they keep us healthy. They honor the people that we're working with. So thank you so much for that. Um, I'm wondering if you could help the, the listeners and help us understand how we might be able to go about finding some specific practices for us, either if it's based on our Enneagram type or based on the kind of trauma we might be 
dealing with, but just some specific practices. How would we go about starting the process of finding that for ourselves? Well, you can find a lot of that in the book. Yes. Uh, We have, um, I, that's one of my favorite chapters. It's called the practices and, Mm -hmm. uh, we have some that's type related. The one thing that I believe connects all of our types together is when you've encountered a trauma, because it happens in the body, your body is almost a portal to healing. So when you go to resolve or integrate the trauma, it's through the body as well. So all of our types can begin to move through a body type I wouldn't say technique practice. Uh, so for instance, um, the deep breathing, I, and I know when sometimes I give clients these ideas, they're like, really Sharon? Like, Hey, I didn't believe it myself till I started doing it. But when I get nervous or I'm in a hard space in life, I'll check out and I'll talk more. I told you all this earlier, deep breathing will impact that because that's getting oxygen to the brain. And we want the frontal lobe to be online so that we can process. Mm -hmm. So any type of movement, deep breathing, stretching, body scans, if our listeners are familiar with body scans, uh, shoulder shrugs, holding your shoulders up to your ears, counting, relaxing. Again, I'm emphasizing body movement because we're getting us out of the head out of, out of the heart and we're relaxing the body and we're telling the body at that point in time, Hey, you're safe. I've got you. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. You're okay. This feels uh, like a great uh, segue into what you call the three M triad of resilience. We're all centers of intelligence and the Enneagram are engaged. Could you, could you speak to that for us? Yeah. So we've got movement, which is the body, Mm -hmm. right? And I don't mean to say the other three centers are not important. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying specific to trauma because trauma happens first in the body. Moving through body first might be that portal, right? Now, there could be some other people that might experience it differently, but you've got to calm the body physiologically. You've got to calm that nervous system. So using the body is key. Meaningful connections, that's like... Oh, I, that to me, I, I, I could go on about that because mm. trauma regulation typically happens when you co-regulate with another human or could be, you know, my dog who's laying right here that just brings me so much warmth and joy, but co-regulating in the trauma world is important because it's like therapist and client and the client will mirror what the therapist, uh, their sense of security, trust, you're, you're giving back to that person. The person is receiving the needed things to heal through co-regulation and those meaningful relationships. And then I believe that mind, is it mindful connections? My mind just went blank, but mindfulness, meaningful connections and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And those are, we've got great practices around that, but I think that's when the frontal lobe you can engage the frontal lobe, it gets online and you've got clarity, you've got focus, safety is secured. And we know those types, uh, five, six, and sevens, um, the need for safety, certainty, and security. But again, if how, how amazing the Enneagram is with our centers, 
everything we need in those three centers <laughs> are needed for trauma resolution. Wow. Mm. <laughs> it's yeah. right here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I haven't thought of it that way. That's really brilliant. It's right here. I mean, it's the map. Hmm. It's providing what we need. What we have to be careful of is to not get ahead of our skis. So Hmm. with trauma, that's why I go trauma focused first. So if someone comes in, Hey, I want to know my type. I, you know, knowing my type will help me um, heal faster. Okay. Yes. I get that. Yes. Because your type behaviors will help us understand. Right. And we can work with that. However, let's get to trauma work and understanding how it's impacted your body first. And that'll give me a better idea because I think sometimes people are mistyped when they're healing from trauma, uh, yeah. because they're looking yeah. at their behaviors and, and really all of us, might be experiencing the same behavior, but we're, or might do be doing the same behavior, but we're typed differently. Yeah. But it comes from trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm. That brings up such an important question in my mind within the Enneagram community, because there's lots of ways to talk about our type, but I feel like one that comes up a lot is describing our type as a coping strategy. And that this is sort of Mm. how it, how our personalities start to develop is we're just coping with what life is, is bringing our way. Um, so what is the difference between having an Enneagram type that, that is just, you know, this is your coping strategy. This is how you deal with the world and a trauma response. Yeah. So I've got a great example of that. Um, I had a client, new client, a couple months ago, self-identify as a nine. And as we began to do some work, I wasn't certain But I said, hey, I'm going to pay attention to not what she's doing, like not those behaviors, but I'm going to pay attention to um, what's underneath it and what's driving it. I really couldn't figure out. Mm. I'm like, I don't, she she feels like she's on the triangle, nine, three, or six, but something else is going on here with this kid, young woman. Mm. Um, I said, kid, she's 26, Mm -hmm. but did a little more history with her and figured out there was some trauma in her background and she had not seen a therapist before. Mm. So as the stress was rising, these coping mechanisms started to amplify, but I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. I think maybe this might be impacting it. I don't know. So I did a body scan with her and, um, with this particular client, I, I use the dumping of the head. Once you get to the head, I said, D- tip your head over and whatever's going on in your head, just let it dump out. Hmm. And then when you're ready, go ahead and lift it back up and let me know uh, that you've finished the practice and we'll move on. So she dumps her head. She lifts her head up. Just tears. Mm-hmm. Just tears. And... um. I thought it was the best thing ever. She said, my head felt like a venti cup full (laughs) of thoughts. I was like, venti, (laughs) that's bigger than grande. Like we are, (laughs) we got a lot going on inside that head, kid. Oh, wow. From that point on, she has talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And that gave me the insight to go, hmm, she could be on the triangle from this past event, but her, um, coping mechanisms, Lindsay, as you were talking about, have 
amp, they've come down a little bit. Mm. Now I'm working with something that is more like norm Mm -hmm. versus elevated. So that what we did was some trauma work there. And now it's opened the gate for us to do more. I still haven't said, hey, no, you're not a nine, maybe you're a six, because I still don't know, because we're still doing that trauma work. I'm still letting it filter out, giving it space. And I, I like to say I'm holding that space for her too. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that uh, practice you mentioned. Back to the idea quick of engaging trauma first. Uh-huh. So once you know your trauma, can you say more about how knowing your type then can help you engage your trauma work? Definitely. So I think when you do, so let's say I'm going to use her as a hypothetical. Okay. Um, this particular client, let's say, um, she ends up self-identifying and then, you know, with going, wow, I am a six and she's moved to more of a complacent nine in her behaviors. Um, then with knowing she's a six, we can begin to work around boundaries with, Hey, when does she dump her head out? (laughs) Hmm. How much is she thinking and ruminating and getting stuck and not able to move forward? Paralyzed, which is when we look at her trauma, she goes into freeze mode. So that mirrors, right? Hmm. Her fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode. She doesn't fawn and become complacent and try to appease in order to gain connection from someone else. She doesn't fight, (laughs) yell at someone or get aggressive. She doesn't hightail it out. She freezes. Well, the brain is over overwhelmed. It's overloaded. Uh, So then we can work at from a resilience standpoint, what her type, you know, allows for her to do to get out of this situation. And we can kind of balance it out. So she's pulling from her resilience and she's normalizing some of those coping mechanisms. She's bringing them down a couple notches so they're not on um, high alert. I hope that did that answer. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And something that we constantly try to highlight on this podcast here, we really love the work of Mario Sikora, Awareness to Action, and he calls the types strategies. And these are not good or bad. And I think it's so easy to slip into one side or the other with talking about type as just this bad thing that's destroying your life. No, it's just a strategy of how you do things, the way that you are most powerful in enacting on your life, whether like hurtful or helpful. Um, And so I just wanted to highlight, because that's what you're speaking to is just so insanely important for everyone, but especially Enneagram community of this, your type is not your enemy. It's just how you do Mm -hmm. life. Um, And it can help you in the most powerful way, but it can also hurt you, right? So final question here is keeping in mind with with our season theme of the dynamics of personhood, um, individuality, mutuality, and unity, if we're focusing on that unity piece as the thing that arises out of individuality and mutuality, could you just kind of step on a soapbox for a second and speak to the Enneagram community? How can we honor Mm -hmm. each other in our own journeys? How can we arrive at a greater sense of unity? Well, for for me, I really believe trauma can connect all of us, Mm -hmm. either in a helpful way or a hurtful way. 
And I think the Enneagram community is one of the answers to connecting us in a helpful way. And that being, we lead with compassion. We lead with open hands, you know, holding loosely what's, what's in front of us. And if you understand trauma, you'll know trauma is not the enemy. The response in the body is what should happen. So to even overlay any gram type is not the enemy uh, or a bad thing. Mm. A person who's traumatized, how they're responding to life, they should. <laughs> it's their protection me mechanism. It's their gear, their armor. And so if you're in a place where you've integrated your trauma and you're not having to fight so hard to breathe or to come above the water again, mm. then you should sit back and be there for that other person. Mm. Even if their coping strategies or the defense mechanisms seem out of whack, it very well could be because of something they're experiencing in their life. And so rather than run away or shun or you know, call out. It's like move towards mm -hmm. and provide something, you know, as coaches, that's what I think makes us amazing is when you're on the front lines of something like that, you have something to, you know, you have education that can actually help another person and inform them or resource or whatnot. So my soapbox is it trauma is that thing that happens that, causes a lot of heartache and wreaks havoc. And at the same time, if you pull together, it can actually unite a community wow. and, and bring it. I, I really do believe that. Wow. Thank you. I got chills. I don't know about you all. I got chills. Sorry. Um, that was, that was beautiful. Thank you so yeah. much, Sharon. Um, just mm -hmm. give us a quick, if people wanted to connect with you, how do they, how do they get in contact with you? Sure. So social media channels are great. Instagram, Sharon K. Ball. Uh, we website, my business name is Nine Paths, or you can email me info at ninepaths.com. Awesome. And make sure everyone to check the show notes. We'll have a link to Sharon's book. It's really great. You should all buy 60 copies for your friends. Each. 60 mm -hmm. for yes. each friend that you have. So good. Um, that's, each. That's <laughs> Um, Sharon, thank you so much. Once again, I, I'm sure we're yeah. going to have many other conversations thank in the you. future with you. This is this is really phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thank you thank for you. having me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you discovering our inner depths one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.